When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thanks for downloading the No Bullshit Leadership podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the life-changing power of great leadership, I have two exciting pieces of news. The first is that my new book, No Bullshit Change, is published on the 1st of June and is available for pre-order. That means you can order it now and it will land on your doorstep, on your Kindle or on Audible on the 1st of June. And the second is that I've launched a brand new online No Bullshit Leadership training program. It's designed for anybody who has ambitions they want to fulfill, places they want to go and people they want to help thrive. If that's you, head over to my website, chris-hurst.com to sign up for more information. That's chris-hurst.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Chris Hurst, and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated, and I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a best-selling author and technology leader. He's become regarded as one of the most respected thought leaders on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. His prior business career saw him spend 12 years running Twitter in Europe and previously YouTube in the UK. He left Twitter as its most senior leader outside of the US. In 2022, his second book, Fortitude, became a smash hit top five bestseller in the Sunday Times charts. It followed his success of his debut title, The Joy of Work. 
The Financial Times made it Book of the Month and it was shortlisted for CMI Management Book of the Year. Bruce is also the host of the podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, in which he interviews psychologists, neuroscientists and workplace experts to understand how we can improve our jobs. Something close to all of our hearts. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So just to give people a little bit of background, let's just do a quick start at the beginning. So you grew up in a council estate in Birmingham, paid your own way to become the first member of your family to go to university. Did your early life shape your ultimate views on leadership? Most definitely it sort of gave me a insight into lots of different businesses that weren't office businesses. So, you know, the critical thing for me, I, was, I worked in a lot of fast food restaurants and a lot of bars and I worked out pretty quickly during shifts there that, oh, right, there's, there's some places that have got a really lovely culture to them. Actually, I'll very willingly do an extra shift. And there's some that I just about can tolerate getting through my mandated hours. So I think it gave me a perspective of the world of work outside of the luxurious places that I ended up working in. So you, I suppose, ended up, to use your phrase, ended up in a very good way, I guess, to working for some of the world's biggest, most famous companies, never mind you know tech companies, but, but companies full stop. Twitter, Google, YouTube, um, household names. Many of these tech companies, as an outsider, by the way, I've never worked in one of them, appear to talk a pretty good game in terms of portraying themselves as great places to work, great cultures, great work-life balance. Was that, was that your reality? Was that your experience? I think it's a lot of misdirection, really. Certainly, you know, my experience when I first got the opportunity to go and work for big tech firms was, wow, they seem to be built on faster rails. They seem to have reinvented the way we work. And look, that's by no accident. Google used to go out in its IPO document, used to go out to investors saying our culture is materially different. That In the old days, if people would find themselves working in their job and, and focusing on that full time in Google, you could work 70% of your time on your job, 20% of your time on a project that you agree with your boss and 10% of your time on a project that you can invent on a whim. And so they used to pretend that in a very sort of materially different way that work was substantially different. And it was all mythology, really. There was no one inside the organisation who worked like that. And so um, it was like this uncomfortable family secret that if anyone ever asked you about 70, 20, 10, you would sort of embarrassedly try and change the subject. So I think that tech firms have been very good at misdirection. A lot of it we can sort of witness with our own eyes, you know. If you ever see someone who visits a tech company, they'll often dazzle you with um, stories of a slide that cascades down the middle of the building or meeting rooms that look like Swiss chalets. And you think, oh, that sounds fun. It's all staging, really. It's it's closer to Disneyland than it is to uh, the working experience there. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I, I've never worked in a tech company, but I was always, let's say, a sceptic uh, when it came to whether those things actually were the case. So um, I'm glad my scepticism in this case has been proven. By the way, I would say this isn't an anti-tech company podcast. I think there are many other businesses beyond just tech businesses. And I guess that that's why you've written the successful books you have. There are many other businesses that let's say the, the story they tell doesn't necessarily reflect the reality inside the business in terms of the kind of the way they want to work. It seems misguided in a sense, well, not in a sense, misguided full stop, because it seems like as soon as you walk through the door as a new employee and you realise that is all, to use a, I would use a slightly less polite phrase, but mythology, let's say that, surely that, that eventually starts to count against them from a cultural point of view. 
I certainly think a lot of people who work in technology companies are dealing with a degree of affluenza in the sense that they they feel often you, you'll be so astonished by this because they're broadly bureaucracies. They're broadly, as they've grown, they're broadly bureaucratic firms with very little agency for the people who work there, very little sense of personal control. But superficially gifted free food, gifted all manner of perks and benefits. And so they often find themselves in this confused, conflicted state where they're like, I don't understand why I don't feel happy because people tell me how lucky I am to work at Meta. Or people tell me how lucky I am to work for Apple. And yet I just don't feel like I get any fulfillment from my job. You left Twitter, anyway, as one of its most senior executives. Did that cognitive dissonance become just too great? Or did you just feel like, I've done this and I want to do something else? I think it was that thing. I'd been there eight years, sort of two presidential terms, if you want to be august about it. And, you know, there's a, there's a sense when you've done something for that span of time that you, you're you not bringing anything new to it, but you're just sort of going through the motions. And at that time, I'd, I'd written this book about workplace culture. I was obsessed with workplace culture, the sort of dynamics of what motivates people in their jobs. And I was getting organisations coming to me saying, oh, do you ever do work with other organisations? And I thought to myself, well, if I'm ever going to use the opportunity to think about doing something else, this might be a good time to do it. I'm fascinated by organisational culture. I mean, I think there's so much bullshit written about it. And, you know, I guess the book I wrote, it is in all organisations, not just businesses, in all organisations where there are groups of people together, it is the defining experience that people have within that organisation. The culture shapes so much of your experience. And yet so many organisations almost never have a meaningful conversation about it at all. Absolutely. And and there's been sort of uh, a lot of discussion in in this year about quiet quitting and the idea that maybe the transaction that work represents for a lot of workers isn't a a good deal. And so, you know, maybe the only option that they've got is rather than buy into this corporate culture that sort of spins the idea that they should be happy to work in an organisation, that rather they should work to rule and just deliver strictly what they're paid for. And as a consequence of that, I find myself reflecting, oh, is the whole idea of work culture this capitalist trick to try and motivate you about something that realistically you shouldn't care about? And I I don't think it's that. The truth is, if we're spending 40 hours a week or maybe longer of our consciousness every week dedicated to a job, truly doing that around people that you've got fondness for, doing it in a way that you believe that you can do it in a meaningfully productive way, doing a good job, I think does give meaning to our lives. That isn't necessarily about a transaction where we're gifting the greatest part of ourselves to business, but more about trying to get some fulfilment about the way we're spending our time and and getting some meaning from it, even if it is in service of someone else's business, I think is a noble thing. There's been the growth of uh, like an anti-work movement over mm. the course of the last couple of years. Yes, there's it a, has. There's, yes. there's a Reddit thread which is about anti-work, but there was a, a book published last year just talking about how work was a toxic transaction. And so that's forced me to reappraise being a champion for good workplace culture. I, I think I return to the notion that when you can do these things well, truly, it's not about selling yourself to an organisation. It's about feeling like the way you're spending your time isn't just this folly, really. is isn't just that you're exchanging the best part of your mind for money. It's, it's something more meaningful than that. 
I 100% agree with that. I'm an optimist, if you like, from a from an, a work culture point of view. And by by optimist, I mean essentially, I agree with you. I think it is possible to do it very well, and organisations, some organisations, do do it very well. In fact, some some companies, I mean, tech companies in particular, are, but but in my experience, organisations are actually big organisations are a multitude of cultures. In fact, I mean, they have a kind of an overall wrapping, but you can work in different parts of the same organisation and have a fundamentally different experience. My view is that, that it is possible and good organisations do find an alignment between the organisation's objectives and you feel, you as an individual feeling like your own personal ambitions can be fulfilled as part of that. So a sort of alignment between the your individual ambition and the organisational ambition is where companies, organisations should aspire to get to. And I think it's doable and good organisations do, do do it. But you can't you can't even start if you're not having a conversation at all about culture, which most companies don't in a meaningful sense. Yeah, precisely. And, and like you say, you know, in the old days when we were all in the office every day, you could have two teams on opposite sides of a walkway and one would have a completely toxic culture and one would have people who were motivated, inspired, convinced that this was the happiest job of their lives. So really, that I've always seen it as quite democratic in that sense. I went into one organisation where the receptionist changed the culture. It was an organisation of about 40, 50 people. And she was an actor. She was between acting jobs. So she would dip in, she would do four weeks work and then sort of go and work somewhere else. And she came in and she said to someone, I think one one Friday afternoon, I think this is the worst place I've ever worked. And um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, the, the freedom of someone who's about to go and do a stint on the bill, I suspect. But um, as, as a result of that, and, and someone said, what do you mean? And they, she said, no one talks to each other. No one even appears to like each other. No one asks what people are doing at the weekend. Anyway, she took matters into her own hand. She um, she said she went out, she went to Boots, she bought uh, four cans of Pringles, four bags of kettle chips. She sent an email around the whole organisation saying, ladies and gentlemen, it's the best time of the week. It's Crisp Thursday. And she invited people to come and eat crisps off paper plates laid out in the middle of the, the office. Now, she did it one week. She did it the following week. By the third week, she turned up dressed as a, a tube of Pringles. And it became this little ritual. It became like the coming together, like the um, the Agora, where, where people would, rather than put a meeting in with each other, they'd say, are you going to be at Crisp Thursday on Thursday? Uh, I'll, I'll chat you there. And it became a moment of coming together in a really trivial way. And she said it started elevating the organisation. They realised, oh, right, OK, they do like each other. They do have shared interests. And that's what I love. So, you know, back to the thing you said before about adjacent teams can have different culture. I always think, OK, well, then it's down to any of us. If you are having a miserable time at work, there are some things that we can do without waiting for the boss's permission, really. That's a great story. I love that. I might have to pulp my latest book because it's the exactly the opposite of what I argue throughout it. <laughs> I think that in all organisations, the most important determinant of the culture is the behaviour of the person at the top. You know, you can write down as much bullshit, frankly, as you like about what you what you think the values are and all that kind of stuff. But it's almost entirely meaningless unless it aligns with the behaviour of leadership. And if you want to have great and effective culture, however you however you as an organisation want to define that, but if you want to have a great and effective culture, the most important thing is to have a leader or a leadership group that are clear what that is and are clear what their behaviours are in order to make that happen. It's definitely true. I have worked in places, though, where the culture and anyone who's worked in 
food will know this well, where the culture is almost like something that exists despite the leadership. I worked in one one radio business where the leadership was guided, directionless, all over the place, hard to predict. But we saw our loyalties mainly to our customers, actually. And so our customers were having a very bad experience because of the, the, uh, the, the way that the business was being run. But we saw our loyalty to them. So honestly, we were working late into the night to try and get things to work. We were really committed to supporting each other. And there was like a weariness about how badly the management was running things. But there was a affinity to like, I, the way I would see is that, you know, we didn't buy into any sort of notion of purpose that the business might have constructed or, or put onto a PowerPoint slide. But there was a real strong sense of shared identity about all the people who work there. It's like, we're going to do a good job here. And so if you've worked in a restaurant, you'll recognize that because quite often the people who own restaurants can be really focused on different objectives. But the sense of the people putting the food together and providing the service can sort of exist despite the ownership of the restaurant. So it's like, I, I find it a fascinating because I hear you, the, you know, leadership does set the weather, but I don't think it necessarily determines every aspect of what takes place afterwards. So we should talk about your book or your latest book anyway, Fortitude. I'm not going to attempt to summarise it. Why don't you tell us what, what it's about, why you wrote it, what you want to achieve with it? It's broadly about the myth of resilience. And by that, I mean that resilience is this word that's been so heavily appropriated by business, by schools. You know, the amount of teachers who've got in touch with me saying, oh my God, I'm fed up with the resilience chat here. And as a result of it being appropriated, it's been deployed for other purposes. So specifically, the, the way that resilience has become a myth is because we've been peddled this version of individualistic resilience. As a consequence of that, people People find themselves being told by their organisations, you're not resilient enough, you need to be more resilient, or kids at school are being told they need to think about being more resilient. And the thing that anyone who's been exposed to talk like that will find is that they can't connect with it. Because if someone tells you you need to be more resilient, you're not necessarily able to think, what's my next action? What do I do now? Because it doesn't feel obvious to us. It's largely because the idea that resilience is individual is a total myth. Resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And the moment you recognise that, and I think that probably the best way to recognise it is to look around us, is to look into the examples of resilience we see in the words of one researcher, actually, is everyday magic exists all around us. But let's think about people in Ukraine right now. Now, did Vladimir Putin just coincidentally invade the country with the most resilient people in the world? Or is there something about going through something together alongside other people we feel an affinity with that activates resilience in us? And it's that. I was out chatting to someone this week and some guy said to me, he asked his dad, he said uh, his dad was a, a schoolboy during the Second World War. He said to his dad, dad, what was the war like? He said, son, it was tough, but none of us who went through it would ever give it up. Wow, that's interesting. What you'd never give up living through a war. And it's because if you look into the testimonies of the people who lived through the Blitz, lived through, you know, more recent wartime um, issues like Kosovo, the Kosovo crisis around the millennium. What the people who go through it say is that there was a really strong, vivid sense that we're all in it together. And that's where resilience lies. Resilience lies in this connected sense of community. Any time I witness resilience, it's when people feel a collective strength. Why on earth have we allowed this word to be appropriated and sort of signal in some way that some of us are more resilient than others? 
Resilience is this word that had a kind of super brief moment in the sun. Suddenly everybody was like talking about resilience. And in fact, when I wrote my first book, I, I didn't write a chapter about resilience, but you know, I thought, you know, resilience is pretty kind of, you know, I'm going to talk about how you can do that. And and I did a podcast with somebody, somebody quite recently and they asked me about it and I hadn't thought about it that much since I wrote it sort of four or five years before. And I thought, you know, it's funny, I'm not sure I'd write that now. I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but it's super interesting talking to you and you've obviously spent a vast amount more time thinking about it than I have. It feels like it kind of came and went and got an awful lot of pushback for all the reasons you're talking about, I think. You, you say you need to be more resilient, but what, is that, what on earth does that mean I actually do? Really interesting you say that. I mean, what I'll say is that schools move at a slow pace. And so while you or I might have sort of reflected and, and said, actually, I'm not sure this is the way that I would articulate something now, that is still flushing its way through school. The whole of the resilience orthodoxy overlooks the fact that the, the resilience chat is often victim blaming because what you say is it's a shame you couldn't concentrate at school. And the reason why other kids did better is because they concentrated more. And it kind of misses the big part of the story. So I think, you know, that's my worry about the discussion about resilience is that it minimizes people's experience. And the truth is about looking at trauma and tr truth is about looking at childhood experience is the, the latest work at, Ace-informed education is the way you describe it. Can overcome these things, but we can't overcome these things by ignoring them. We overcome these things by addressing them and helping to provide a salve to them. What is resilience then? So to me, in my crude understanding of it, resilience is our ability to deal with setbacks and hardships and bounce back, which seems to, that would be a good thing because setbacks happen to us all, all the time. Uh, and it's hard when it does. And how do we deal with it? And I and I think your observation earlier around, you know, one of the things that helps us do that is actually the people we're surrounded with, whether that be the community, our family, our friends, I suppose all of the above. I'm fascinated trying to understand what it is. In fact, is it anything at all? I think, you know, when when, when we see people at Access Resilience, it's generally for those, uh, those reasons. There are a couple of factors that limit our sense of resilience. When we have a lack of personal control, where, when we feel helpless is, the, I guess, the opposite of control. We, we're often rendered into a state where we don't feel resilient. Very clear application right now. 78% uh, of workers say that they're not able to make any decisions in their job. So that's the realities of modern work. We've created this sort of tick box version of work where people are given marching orders, they're told what to do, they don't feel like they've got any room to navigate around the edges. Or they might open their calendar for all the fact that people might advise us, oh, anytime you're in a meeting that you don't think is any value, make sure you get up and leave. I think that's the sage advice of Elon Musk. And it's very easy to do that when you're a billionaire. It's, it's just right. one of those useless pieces of advice. That Absolutely. <laughs> if you're 23 years old, you just started just work. Getting up and leaving a meeting is not an option. It's just bullshit. No. Yeah. yeah. And so if you're in back-to-back -back meetings all day and then all of a sudden an email comes in or you're in back-to-back -back meetings all day and you think, when am I meant to answer these meetings? Slacks keep happening. When am I meant to do this? It's that helplessness, that lack of control often manifests as a sort of an absence of resilience. So there are a couple of individual contributors. The other individual contributor is a sense of personal identity. 
And that might feel like a sort of a, a vague thing. But what you discover is that the more we feel like we're not code switching, we're able to manifest our true identity, that we're not sort of concealing who we are. It seems to have a direct impact. And the example I, I return to all the time on that is some haunting research that came around the, the last pandemic when HIV AIDS was, was coming about. And as AIDS was coming around, easy to forget this, but as AIDS was coming around, there was a long period, months months and years where no one really knew what AIDS was. And so at that time, anyone who tested positive for HIV, uh, they would just track them and observe it. And one thing that was remarkable was that those people who lived in what you would call um, stigmatised identities, people who weren't openly gay to their, these were all gay men in San Francisco, uh, people who weren't openly gay, they were far quicker to see a decline in their T-cell count. They were far quicker to develop uh, full-blown AIDS. And sadly, tragically, there were far quicker to die. And it's largely because if we live a stigmatised identity, if we feel that the identity we represent is is something that we need to conceal. It does appear to have an impact on our well-being. The biggest predictor of how long you live in life is where you place yourself on a status chart of... If someone gives you a ladder and says, which rung of this ladder do you place yourself on? It remarkably has a direct impact on your uh, your physiognomy, me, on your your lifespan, where you see yourself in life. Your status has a direct impact. So our identities play a, a critical individualistic part as well. So fortitude, how does it differ to resilience? It's a synonym, really. I think, you know, if the word was so heavily appropriated, if the resilience word, I'll tell you what happened. I met someone just as I was writing the book. I said, I'm writing a book on resilience. And she went, oh, God, are you? We've all been sent on a resilient. <laughs> We've all been sent on a resilience course at work. Always good to hear that. Amazing. Always you... good to get that after after you've written 35,000 words. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've invested the last year of your life writing something and, and you, you expose it to the first audience mid, mid-COVID lockdowns you've not seen a real person in months and they roll their eyes but um she said everyone at my work's been sent on a resilience course and it doesn't work okay that's good and then i've got a friend who works at the whittington hospital and she said if you mention resilience in the nhs people will thump you the word for me is it a little tainted you avoid trying to provide a silver bullet to this challenge let's say what do you conclude it's something we would all we would all like to be able to be more resilient have more fortitude i think how does the how do you help us achieve that are there things we can do yeah i think reductively if i was going to say one thing if i was going to you know, if I was going to sort of offer a counterpoint to these sort of failed interventions that have cost the US Army a billion dollars or they've, they've failed in every inter- intervention in schools. And that's the critical thing to mention. You know, if your school runs a, a resilience course for, your, for, the, for the kids who go there, um, the evidence we've got, the peer reviewed evidence we've got is that it doesn't work. It does not. It's a waste of time. Uh, it's a waste and money. of money. It's and a, money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, if we wanted something reductive, well, you know, firstly, there's no shortage of evidence in a far simpler thing. Resilience is the strength we draw from 
from each other. Resilience is the strength we provide to, to the people around us. And actually the moment, if you teach that, if, you, if that was the thing that organisations taught people, they taught people that, you know, if you're feeling low, actually the solution is a social cure. If you're um, at school to school kids, if you're feeling low, then what you might think is next time you get together with your friends, put your phones down. If you, you know, if you're feeling low, then what can you do to achieve activities? And look, beautiful examples of this. If you take people who've had, so, you know, let's take older demographics, but if you take people who've had an episode of depression that's hospitalised them or have had major heart surgery, the biggest predictor of how they will be in three years and, and five years is how many groups they report feeling part of. Now, in that methodology, you're allowed to say your family is one of those groups. But so that might be, okay, and you can join those groups after that intervention. So it might be, okay, just had a major heart surgery. I'm going to join a cycling group. I'm going to make sure that those old colleagues that I used to work with, I get together with them once every three months. Now, that's two groups there. And your family, you've got three groups. Four groups seems to be an amazing number. The more groups you report feeling part of. And it's, so thinking about the way to br maybe obliquely to bring these group activities into our lives seems to be one of the best things we can do. There, there's societal examples. If you were back as the CEO of Twitter, what would you do differently then as a, as a result of, of what you've learned? Well, I think definitely there's an application for the moment we're in about hybrid working. So, you know, let's work on the basis. I think the average for the UK is two or three days a week in the in the office. Um, so let's work on the basis that you've got people in the office. And the the what the consequence of that is that our relationship with work has changed, actually. You know, you and I have sort of spoken um, glowingly about when the relationship with work is good. It can be sort of a fulfilling aspect of our lives. But the, the relationship with work has changed from something that used to be close to school, you know, governed by timetables, governed by really tight affinity, connection with people. And it's become something closer to our relationship with college, where the people you hung around with at the weekend weren't the people that you're on your course with normally. In fact, you often had friends you didn't even know what they were studying. But if you think about then your relationship with those people on your course, it was transactional. You'd often sort of work with them on projects if you had to. You'd, you got on with them well, but they weren't a big part of your life. And so we've moved from this school relationship to this college relationship. Now, if any organisations are thinking, what can we do to try and create a good culture, you need to think about that. How do you create a tighter affinity with a group that is probably naturally a bit more disparate? And the critical thing there is just thinking about how you fashion that sense we're all in it together. How do you fashion that group cohesion? And in truth, the ways you do it are probably far more tactical. They're probably more soft skills than we're used to. It probably wouldn't earn a place in a business strategy, but it's about team lunches. It's about team dinners. It's about probably orchestrating moments of togetherness the, in the way that we didn't spend a lot of time doing it before. Now we've got to be a bit more in, intentional about building things. I did um, a really fascinating conversation a couple of weeks ago with um, the Moth. Do you know the Moth? They, they run these storytelling nights. It's like this organisation. They're beautiful podcast. It's true stories told live. And the podcast gets a couple of million listeners a year. And uh, and people just stand up to tell us a story about themselves that involves a bit of stakes, involves change, often like these often sort of tear-inducing uh, stories. Anyway, I saw along the way that they run 
corporate storytelling. And I thought, here we go. This is just telling someone how to do PowerPoint better. <laughs> and they said, and I, you know, I was like, oh. many, many, I said, many companies would benefit from that. <laughs> absolutely. I said to him, oh, is, is that what you do with companies? You teach them how to tell a better yarn about a slide. And they went, oh, no, no, far, far from it, actually. That might be an unintended consequence. But the storytelling sessions, we get people together and we tell them how to craft a story of their own life that maybe involved something that, you know, by the fact it's got stakes in it, it's quite often quite a personal, emotional story. And what they find is when people tell their stories to each other, having crafted them into a, a really sort of um, a, a really involving narrative by telling the stories to each other, suddenly they become rather than Chris and Bruce. It's like, oh, people who've, they've got a sort of a bit of investment in each other. It's like they really care about these people. Now, in the old days, I don't think we'd have spent a half a day doing that. And we'd, if we did it, we'd have seen it as like this frivolous, nice to have. But, but I think good organisations now might be thinking part of trying to make us all buy into each other. It's, I think it's probably thinking what, about what you said about those group of eight people in the army. It's like, how can you make little teams far more cohesive? How can you make this team who have got all these codependencies, how can you make them feel like they're invested in each other? And I think the art of leadership is fundamentally changing before our very eyes. But I think these things that probably would never have found their way onto a strategy document before are going to be the differentiators of good firms and bad firms, I think. Well, I'm a big fan of spending a lot of time talking about the things that don't typically make their way into strategy documents, frankly. Listening to you talk about fortitude, this idea that that at least partly, if not wholly, we gain our fortitude from the support of the people we have around us, the groups we have around us. Maybe we have multiple, well, ideally would have multiple groups, but let's say in a work context. I think I, I once talked to a, a former member of the Special Forces and, and he talked about the first thing they learn to do is learn to be good team members. And I think that's a really interesting question in any team. What is being a what does being a good team member in this team mean? And of course the first thing on that list is looking after each other, looking out for each other. Listening to you, if I was to think, okay, how do I implement what you've taught, what you've learned and shared with us? That idea of talking to teams about what it means to be a team member. We have all this, frankly, a lot of this sort of the team theory, the, the, the business school strategy stuff about how teams work, which doesn't typically cover this kind of thing. Um, but the idea of what does it mean to be a good team member? And and that being we look out for each other. It's a, it's a place where we feel safe and secure and we've got each other's back. And that's a slightly cheesy expression but that that feels like an, a way of at least a step in implementing then you have a maybe a a team that becomes more resilient and the team is a is a con is made up of individuals yeah absolutely and i think those basics that probably in a world that's so relentlessly busy so hectic so mm. distractible they probably get pushed out but you know i think they've got an enduring value to them very good well that has been absolutely fascinating. Um, thanks so much for your time, Bruce. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Learned loads from it uh, and uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much. Cheers, Chris. Thank you.
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.